First things first, guys, uh, welcome. Is this thing on? Okay, good. A uh, couple of things. Uh, I have a pretty thick Puerto Rican accent, so if you don't understand something, feel free to go ahead and ask me again. I'll be sure to have my wife translate for me. Um, another thing, this is going to be uh, pretty much the perspective of one man fighting the war on terror. I'm on side by side amongst the best this nation has to offer. You're going to hear some true stories and some uh, stories that are pretty much uh, heard, but you didn't know who performed in those particular missions, specifically that Ehrman had a role in that. Um, this is pretty much the layout of what we're going to be doing tonight. Um, <laughs> Jack of all trades. We're going to talk about the origins, uh, basically how I came across this, uh, this particular opportunity to do this, uh, this great job, the training that it took to become one, Quick job description for those of you who do, who do not know what Pararescue does. Uh, current missions and lessons learned there, and this is based on my own experiences and some of my friends. Sacrifices, pretty much encapsulating everything that we go through. And then lastly, final perspectives, kind of like Jerry Springer's final thoughts. <laughs> so one thing I will say right now that uh, this uh, presentation contains some graphic images and uh, some truthful accounts of uh, battles. So, uh, I'm going to try to go ahead and uh, keep it as real as possible. I will not water anything down. You guys got to come to terms with the reality of war, what we're going through right now. Uh, before we move on any further, I have about a five, uh, four and a half uh, minute video clip that goes through Power Rescue. So without further ado, we'll go ahead and get started with that. Sergeant in the Air Force, and I've been a parachute for three years. Actually, when I came into the Air Force, I was about six months out of high school. I guess I had a part-time job, uh, stock groceries late at night, and I just knew there was something more out there. And, um, I wanted to be in the Air Force, but I wanted something that you get as a SEAL, something that you get as a Marine for a three-ton something that you get as on the Green Beret. And I didn't realize the Air Force had anything like this. To me, it just seems like the greatest job in the world. You know, where else can you be in the military, serve your country, 
be able to skydive, be able to dive, you learn how to rock climb, do high angle rescues, all the things that just any type A personality guy would just love to do and get paid for it. So I just been doing this for a long time. stayed overseas up north, basically providing what we call airborne combat search and rescue. If the pilot was to get shot down, unfortunately, or if a special forces team member was to uh, go down, then our job would be to cross into enemy territory, go and uh, find him, battle out of there, stabilize him, bring it back to the jet room. still hiring for all of you guys in the crowd if you want a job. All right, let's talk about origins. How does one become a special operator in the United States uh, military? It's probably one of the toughest duties out there. Uh, for me, growing up, I was a free spirit. You know, everything, I wanted it now, and I wanted it two years before I was supposed to be doing it. By two years, I wanted roller skates because my sisters were roller skating. Uh, by age four or five, I thought I was Steve Austin, and I was leaping from houses and gladly didn't break any bones. Mom, thanks a lot for not medicating me during those times. <laughs> Especially when I was wearing, going to the supermarket with her wearing underoos with a towel wrapped around my neck thinking that I was Superman. <laughs> but uh, it takes a special kind of animal to do this kind of uh, job. And the more and more I get to know about my friends, the more I know that we're so close, yet so far apart when it comes to mentality. Always a dreamer, always wanted something more. And uh, that is basically what pushed me to do this. And this is pretty much what it takes to become one. It's about two years of training. And the beginning stepping stone is the pararescue and combat rescue officer indoctrination course at Lackland. They call it indoctrination because it's a kinder, gentle Air Force. What it is is a selection and a kick in the butt to see which man will stand standing. In our class, we had 112 candidates that began training. We had a Christmas break. After that week, about 55, 60 came back. That's 50% gone. By the end of the 12 weeks, we had only 12 that graduated the first 12 weeks. Now, throughout the course of the rest of the pipeline, by the time we got done to the end, there were only nine that ended up becoming pararescuemen. So that gives you a perspective of pretty much how, what our washout rates are. So after we get done with the indoctrination course and we'll pick the guys that are going to continue, 
We used to go to the combat diver course, the special forces course in Key West, Florida. Here about three years ago, we broke ground on our own program, which is phenomenal, which is tailored for what we do, which is recovery operations on the water. Um, and that is now in Panama City, Florida. From there, we go ahead and uh, permanent change of station all of our students to Kirtland Air Force Base, New Mexico. And we start farming them out to all the different schools, which include EMT, uh, D and P, which is basically an 18-month course that will crunch down to six months. And our guys are some of the best paramedics out there. Army Basic Airborne, basically any dummy can go to that school. You just get on a plane, you strap something on your back, you jump out, you land, and then you do it again. Six times or five times, and then you're good to go, golden. Then we go to Military Freefall, which is a little bit more technical. There, they bring you to a plane, you go ahead and go up, you jump, but you have to open your own parachute this time. And uh, it is a lot more technical because it's precision parachuting, how to basically just navigate four miles to be able to get from point A to point B. You also go to survival training. Uh, mostly every single ERCA member in the Air Force goes to this particular training. But we go through some other steps after that one on how to survive and how to survive in captivity. And lastly, the pararescue and combat rescue officer apprentice course at Kerlin Air Force Base in Mexico. That is six months to where you put all of these vehicles together. This is to get from point A to point B, but what do you do when you get there? That's where you actually tie it all together, and you tie it all together to perform this mission. 25 graduates in 2001. We have 115 grads last year, and that is basically after September 11, we had a spike. Our young men ended up signing up because they wanted to do their duty, and Jeff's, Jeff spoke about the anger after 9-11, and a lot of us felt that. I was serving at the time. I was in Virginia Beach when the plane struck the, the Twin Towers, and I have just gotten back from a run. And we'll, we'll go through that process to let you know exactly how things panned out after a particular uh, day and incident. And this is the mission of a pararescueman. In a nutshell, you guys can read the slide, but it's rescue anytime, anywhere. And why do we need rescue? Because bad things happen. We're asking people to put themselves in harm's way, from the soldier to the airman to the sailor, in every single environment. We have trees, we have mountains, we have sand, we have water, we have snow. And we have to be proficient in every single environment because when things go wrong, we are the 911 call that goes and responds to these things. And why so fit? Why do we have to be physically fit, even as a chief, right now, I have to keep up with my 19 and 21-year-olds, which most of them can't keep up with me anyways, but that is the, <laughs> that's the nature of the beast. But uh, reason being is because when you put yourself in harm ways to get somebody out of trouble, what are the chances that they're able to walk out with you? Pretty slim to none. Chances are you're going to have to carry somebody. Not only that, but you have to carry all of this equipment. And what I have here is just personal equipment. This is personal sustainment. It doesn't include any of the rescue equipment that we have to put on in addition to that. And you saw the last man on, that, on the video with all the parachuting equipment with the oxygen mask. That's about 130 pounds of equipment altogether, including the parachute and everything. So a guy like me that weighs about a buck fifty, that's doubling my weight. Now you get some of these other beefcakes that we have in the periphery that are 6'4", 240 pounds. It's like carrying a fanny pack. But <laughs> to make it look cool, we'll say that the equipment is on me. Uh, and what you have here is just uh, an assortment of weapons. Uh, right now we have a carbine sidearm for a close quarter battle, medical equipment to include narcotics, and uh, a small surgical kick to be able to uh, do surgical procedures downrange. 40 mic, my 5.56, Belgian grenades, low bearing equipment with survival, 
helmets, and so on, so on. So you see, pretty much, you saw the first picture in the, in the origin slide where I have Don Quixote, and then on the overview, I had the jack of all trades. And that is because we have to be able to react to every single environment. And every single, uh, every single society has had such special wars. Pretty much the men that people call upon when nobody else wants to do the deed. They also know that hard times call for hard men. And one specific group here is the Spartans. And the reason, the reason I use them is because there was 300 of them that held the gates at Thermopylae against millions and millions of Muslims that were trying to overtake uh, their land. And there's only about 300 pararescuements nowadays. And notice the crimson, pretty much, their mar the, our maroon beret and their capes pretty much go side by side. And plus, I think that if we got into a bar fight with these guys uh, now, we'll win because they're wearing dresses. And we just keep <laughs> going. But, you know, pretty much, much like them, society has always needed somebody to call upon when things go horribly wrong. Not only that, but somebody that is willing to sacrifice his own life for somebody else to have a better life. And that is what Pararescue is all about. 911 for everyone. It says that at the bottom because even SEALs, Green Berets, and Recon Marines need to call 911. And that is true because we put ourselves in harm's way. We go where nobody else wants to go. And when the best of the best get in trouble, who are they going to call upon? Not Ghostbusters. They call us. Um, the, following, uh, the following slides that I'm going to show you uh, have a couple of graphic pictures. That, like I said in the beginning of the lecture, it's, it's basically to make, uh, to make sense and justice of what we're trying to put uh, across here. Um, we have a lot of guys sacrificing so much. And right now, there's guys in the fight out there getting ready to go ahead and get after it, after the enemy. And, uh, we do a lot of missions. Uh, most of the public ties us to a helicopter doing search and rescue up and down the hoist. And that was true in Southeast Asia. Nowadays, we have developed and morphed into all these other capabilities because as war evolves, the man has to evolve up as well. And I like to call us the big, great white shark. It's almost unchanged, but it always adapts to his environments to make sure that he remains up on top. First one we're going to talk about is combat search and rescue. The same thing that we were doing in Southeast Asia, which pararescue is uh, mostly famous for. Um, Combat Search and Rescue ended up flying about 100 sorties in OEF and uh, some in OIF. Um, it was basically covering about a 1,400-man task force, uh, about 700 ground and air assets that were in and out performing missions every night, sometimes two, maybe three missions going on simultaneously and we were on what they call a 30-minute string. Basically, something happens, you have the blades turning, and you go ahead and react to it. A lot of great missions happen out there in, uh, in Afghanistan, and I was lucky to do this uh, particular job for just one rotation. Most of my rotations were pretty much direct action attached to a SEAL team. But uh, this is one of the most noble things we do. And uh, if you look at the tally record, pretty much when you look at uh, what uh, CNN, what Fox News, and everything is, is putting out people performing this rescue, you can almost guarantee that pararescue is involved in most of them, including this one here that most of you pretty much heard about, the rescue of Jessica Lynch. The picture doesn't lie. That's pararescue man Chris Tellsworth, and that flag right there is the flag that she was clenching in her fist when she was brought out of uh, Iraq into Landstuhl, Germany. The press put out that it was the Marines that recovered. Yeah, well, that is true. There was a smaller group of men that were doing the technical aspects of the mission. 
And this pararescueman here, make sure that he got her at ease, packaged her, and made sure he got her to safety. Up to this day, they're friends. And uh, Chris is a great pararescueman. He's uh, actively serving right now in Davis Month in Arizona. But he was the one that when she said, hey, I'm an American, he told her, hey, I'm an American too. Just go ahead and hold on to this. This is who we are. Because she was hysterical. And if you go on YouTube, you can pretty much watch the entire hit. But uh, it was a pretty good mission that uh, led us to her based on a good Samaritan, a good Iraqi lawyer. <laughs> I never thought I'd say those words, good lawyer. <laughs> um, but a good Iraqi lawyer came out and said, hey, I have, I have uh, seen this girl. I think it's somebody that you're looking for. She's an American. You guys need to do something about it. Because most of the other people that had gotten captured with her had either been assassinated, killed, and buried in a soccer field uh, close by the hospital which was the ranger's job to go and dig in the bodies, which is no easy task because they have been decomposed for, for quite a while. But we got Jessica back, and that was a huge win for the United States and for West Virginia, I guess, if nothing happens on there. <laughs> Let's talk about direct action for a little bit. Uh, this is pretty much when you put special tactics personnel, combat weather, pararescuemen, combat control, and TACPs attached with other services. So it's basically what we call a rainbow coalition. A lot of services pretty much interacting together. And most of these missions were looking for targets, specific targets. Our targets were the top three. If you look at a base hierarchy, you have the wing, group, and squadron. We were taking care of the wing and group commanders. Everything below that was for the conventional forces. And uh, this is probably one of the most rewarding missions that we ended up doing out there because it was immediate feedback. When you capture somebody, you got some good intelligence out of them. When you kill somebody, you know that there was one less bad guy on the street. And as you can see, part of it is also uh, taking most of their assets away from them. Pretty primitive in nature, but they're pretty advanced when it comes to their thought process in combat because they've been doing it for a long time, a lot longer than I have been on this earth. And yes, I'm 38, just in case. Don't let the, the knowledge frost uh, fool you. But uh, I want to talk about one mission here specifically that, was, uh, that is part of the Warrior Airman exhibit. And this is uh, a mission going after uh, a gentleman called Mahmoud Shah. This one particular guy was uh, transporting uh, potassium cyanide back and forth from Pakistan. And we have been tracking him for about uh, 30 days. And uh, we got the call, the trigger, to go ahead and go and get him. Immediately upon infiltration into the site, we were landing the 47s into a dry uh, riverbed. When the helicopter, my helicopter was the first one coming in, when it came in full final, we started hearing all these pings going around. And uh, we thought it was pretty much the small rocks from the dry uh, riverbed. Then the flat engineer gets rocked back, and the, the right gunner starts screaming, get out, get out. He says some other word, but we won't say that word here. <laughs> It starts with an F and ends with a K. Um, <laughs> he ended up just going ahead, get out. And uh, as we start running out, we start seeing muscle flashes coming from three different directions. And uh, we talk about trying to get small behind riverbed rocks. They're, they're not many big ones. And uh, we had this indigenous force with us. And those guys just pretty much scattered around the place. And then there were uh, myself and these two gentlemen right here just pretty much looking to where the enemy were going. And they were still actively engaging us. The problem here was that we didn't know who else was around that dry riverbed. They were waiting for us, and there were three other helicopters coming in. So immediately, uh, my buddy right here in the middle, Coop, 
made the call to go ahead and start chasing these guys, and they were chasing up, be, were being chasing them up the hill, which is pretty much not an advantageous point because they can easily just dig in and shoot down, and then we're toast. But we ended up overrunning them, and uh, then the indigenous forces caught up and started running after us too. So it looked like a lot more dudes were coming after the bad guys. But uh, we ended up uh, we ended up uh, eliminating the threat. The threat. Uh, I personally shot two with my weapon. Coop and uh, and Mark ended up killing a couple more, and uh, basically we stopped the attack. What we ended up finding out is that they had a cache of uh, RPGs. PKM and a lot of other weapons that they could have potentially gone up that hill and waited for the other helicopters to come in and down one of them. So that changed the tide of that particular battle. Once we got done with it, they had a whole bunch of materials that were, they were using for suicide bombs and everything else. And we got some good intel because we ended up capturing Mamusha's brother. Mamusha was one of the guys that we ended up shooting from the get-go. And he was a pretty bad, bad guy. But uh, we ended up getting some good uh, information on some follow-on targets that we had. And uh, one of those was uh, this particular mission that we ended up doing jointly with, uh, with the SAS. And uh, on this one, we got word that there was a guy that was uh, selling drugs to go ahead and uh, fund terrorism. And uh, this guy was not only selling drugs, but we got intelligence that he was providing documents for people to do cross-border operations, do bad things, and then go back out pretty much scot-free. So he was providing a sanctuary for bad guys. Uh, when we walked upon this target, uh, the guy had just huge amounts of hashish, and he ended up uh, selling them and then funding terror. And some of the, the weapons that we saw earlier were, uh, were some of his. As a show of force, we normally went ahead and uh, put explosive in the cache to destroy the weapons, and then we destroy some of the products, some of the other stuff we confiscated. We had been up probably for about 36 hours at this point, and uh, we were taking speed, we were taking amphetamines, what they call go pills, just to be able to press on with the mission at the time. And uh, we started burning this hashish, and I got the bride, and I was like, hey, Coop, go ahead and take a picture. This is kind of cool, man. This bunch of drugs that I got these guys, indigenous guys, yeah, that's big, something to put in the album. Uh, the camera died, so Coop went back to get another battery. So in the meantime, we're standing next to the scene. If you can see the way the smoke is just actually flowing. <laughs> so we ended up standing there. Coop comes back with the, second, uh, with the second camera. He snaps the pictures and everything else. And by then, man, it's just like, all right. Well, <laughs> what else do we need to do? Where are we going? Uh, it was a five-hour ride back to the, to the base, and I swear to God, guys, that I understood this man. They were speaking Pashto, and I was just like, yeah, right on, man. I, I get you. I ate about five MREs on the travel back, and they had to sign a statement that I was exposed to this stuff. So lesson learned here, don't stand too close to a, pa to a pile of burning hashish, especially uh, raw product. Then surveillance and reconnaissance. Another lesson learned was that uh, the enemy was pretty smart about conventional tactics. We started out doing the direct action missions infiltrating by helicopter. One problem, most of the valleys out there are in bowls, and you have to go through mountain passes to get to them. When the helicopters were about seven miles from target, the sound just traveled so fast through those canyons that they heard the helicopters coming. By the time we got to the villages, it was what we call a dry hole. There was nobody there. 
So we started using this, this nifty thing called UAVs. We're like, all right, so we've been hitting dry hole after dry hole. Let's see what's going on here. We ended up employing the UAVs, and we send up uh, dummy runs of helicopters, resupplies, and we'll film what happened, what's going on. So no kidding, you know, about seven minutes out, people dispersing like roaches out of the villages. We're like, hmm, okay. So they're hearing us right around this time, blah, blah, blah. So we had the guys, the intel guys with the 20-pound brains out there. Well, based on my calculations, because of the wind, whatever, dude, how long does it take for them to hear this helicopter? <laughs> they're like, uh, about, you got to be about seven miles. I was like, all right, cool. So we started thinking outside the box. And you're going to see a lot of pictures with beards and everything else. We had to outsmart him, just like, uh, just like General Olds used to do back in the days, putting like communist stars in his aircraft and everything else just to gain a little bit of advantage because the enemy was getting too good. Now, we're fighting them in their own backyard. So by looking like them, will give us some means of infiltration, especially a little guy like me, skinny, brown, with a big beard. You know, I fit in perfect. So we used to go ahead and get on a taxi cab with another interpreter and drive through the village. When the helicopters were coming around, okay, they're running that direction, that direction, that direction. It's like, all right, check, take notes. When the real hit will come, we'll have forces in place all around the village. Now we send the helicopters in, guys start running out. It was like a bad episode of Cops. People getting tackled, people getting captured, and uh, we ended up getting a lot of good guys, well, good, bad guys, high-value targets that way. The key thing is that we didn't have to kill them. We were capturing them alive, which was leading, leading us to some other men that we were looking for. And that was uh, one of the successes there of the mission. And this is, once again, my happy face in Afghanistan after being up for like 36 hours. So, and uh, how many of you guys have seen the water airman display here at the museum? That is that Sheshar cat that is in that display right there. And if you look at the belly of that Sheshar cat, it was uh, dipped in blood a couple of times for numerous reasons. And I'll go ahead and touch upon that in the end when we talked about it. And you're also going to notice that a lot of the men had uh, New York Fire Department and uh, Police Department patches on their uniforms. That was our tribute to them based on the 9-11 events. And when we first went into the war, everyone was angry, guys. Everybody had anger, just like you had anger when you were sitting back here. How dare they? How dare they hit us in our own turf? Well, we got the opportunity to go forward to their turf and go ahead and deal some ass weapons because they deserve them. And we did it pretty good at first. And we come to realize a lot of things, too, that there is good and bad, good and bad in e everywhere you go. And we got to see it firsthand in some of the villagers, the good, the bad, and the ugly, which was mostly us. <laughs> this particular mission here, uh, we got infiltrated. And uh, I got to check my records, but I'm almost sure that 357 was one of the helicopters that brought us into that mission. And that is the big 53 that is over there by the War Airman display. But uh, what we ended up doing is we ended up loading some ATVs, and our mission was to travel 120 miles in three days through the middle of the desert, no man's land, and resurvey three desert landing zones for C-17s to be able to put men in the dirt and get these forward staging bases going. On this particular mission, we ended up, uh, we got infill, and this is shortly right after infill. We got our equipment together and everything else, dustproof the weapons, and pretty much made sure that everybody was good to go. And it was self-sustained. We had food, water, and ideas on how to do this. Um, halfway through the trek, we ended up running upon this. That is a camel. That is an animal that is designed to survive in the desert. And that poor SOB just gave up. So 
all of us are here just wondering, it's like, man, that camel gave up. What the hell are we doing standing next to him? <laughs> you know? Not only that, but just when you thought you were in the middle of nowhere, this guy will show up in a bicycle with an AK. <laughs> it's like the Afghan version of Pee Wee's Big Adventure, you know? <laughs> so, of course, we're like, you don't know if this guy's a bad guy, if he's collecting intel. So we always we were taking pictures of him. And uh, this particular guy right here, he didn't look. I mean, will you trust his savory character? <laughs> I, I wouldn't, you know. And uh, that's why you see my gun pointed at his foot. I'm like, if he pulls that AK out, I'm shooting him. And uh, so we ended up uh, just taking it back, make sure that he didn't check out with any of the other pictures. And this particular picture here, this was three quarters into the mission. We ended up uh, rolling up in the very first uh, airfield that was assaulted in Afghanistan, and that was Objective Rhino. That's the one that most of you saw on CNN, the MVG video of guys parachuting into Afghanistan. We went back, and there's a pretty big camp, a lot of structures, and there was a runway right in, that, uh, in there. And uh, it was supposed to be isolated. We got intel the day before saying that there's nobody there, no Afghan military, blah, blah, blah. So we're like, all right, cool. So we're traveling, and it's probably right around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Daytime, you know, normally like to approach buildings in the nighttime because we had the advantage with the MVGs and everything else. But we ended up deciding, well, it's supposed to be isolated. Let's go ahead and check it out. So as we approach, we gain a little bit of high ground, and we saw some movement within the compound. Uh, we're like, okay, well, that's not really good. This is supposed to be isolated. And we're looking for markings, you know, uniforms things of that nature, making sure that we will run into insurgents. Well, we decided to send two scouts out to get a little bit closer look and get eyes on them what was going on. No sooner than those guys ended up going ahead and hitting some soft dirt and kicked up some dust, there were about four Hilux trucks, which is the equivalent to a Tacoma, a Toyota, with guns mounted on it, packed to the gills. These guys had our, uh, pretty much mortar rounds, RPGs, and they were coming after us, and they had us flanked. We're like, all right, so what do we do now? There's 10 of us, and there's probably about 40 of them. Combat controller Duke Danforth starts calling for closer support. Can't get anything on the net. We're like, wow, we're going to have to fight this out. So we made the decision to go ahead and try to get into higher ground and get, get a good uh, fighting position. We see that the trucks are getting closer on the sides, and we're flanked now. So Hans, the team leader, ended up saying, all right, dig in right now. We're going to fight it out. So everybody's just pretty much laying in the middle of the desert, nothing. Just pretty much, if I'm laying face down here with my gun pointing that way, the enemy's pretty much all around. So we're like, all right, this is it. You know, this is going to be our Thermopylae. We're going to fight to the end. But it just so happens that one of the flags in the ATVs uh, pops up, and it's our American flag. The guys kind of look over, and then they just kind of get in one of the trucks and start waving the Afghani flag. We're like, okay, so what's going on here? We sent two scouts to go ahead and meet them. We had snipers trained on the guys that were walking towards us, and we sent the guys, and then we get the radio call back. Hey, these guys were for President Karzai. They're good. They want us to have us over for lunch. <laughs> so we took them up in the offer. We ended up having lunch with them, and as soon as they found out that I had a medical bag with me, there were about 30 of them lined up with all kinds of nasty toes and things like that. So winning hearts and minds, we'll go ahead and treat them and everything else. And, uh, you know, we gave them medical treatment. You know, they gave us food. They also gave us the runs because it was pretty much what we like to call chainsaw chicken. It looks like they just go ahead and put a bag of chickens and just chainsaw and make stew out of them. And uh, so 
But we were grateful that we didn't get into a firefight with them because that would have been really bad, not definitely strategic going for the war. And then low visibility operations. We talked about the taxi cab. We talked about some of the things that we needed to do. And once again, it's all about outsmarting the enemy. It was all about, all right, how can we get ahead of them? Because if you got those guys in the mountains, man, they got a loaf of bread, a bladder of water, flip-flops, and man jammies, and they just outrun you and run for days. They got the vantage point. They have been doing this for, for decades. So we ended up just, uh, just going ahead and altering our plan over and over again, and low visibility was definitely the way to go. The one lesson learned for me here is like to speak up in English as best as I could so I didn't get shot in the face with the rest of the other guys that were pretty much hiding in, in the village. Because uh, there was always a big American flag or something hanging from my neck because my friends will tell me, like, dude, you better freaking say something in the dark because I'm going to shoot you. So, but it was, uh, it was a good lesson learned. And then, you know, just treating the guys that were pretty much giving us the intelligence and everything else. But it's unlike any clinic. If you show up to a clinic and your uh, doctor's got a Glock, on the side of his head, beware, because you may get some treatment that you don't want. But I get always asked, what in the hell are you doing to this guy, Ray? He had back problems, people, all right? There's nothing else going on there. And my hand is gloved for a reason. And then we got some high-profile uh, missions. Uh, we were the first team to uh, end up covering on President Hamid Karzai's uh, security detail. This is shortly, we took him out of the country in the beginning, then we put him back in power. And uh, he asked for a team of special operators based on the threat that was coming upon him. And we ended up moving to this little place right across from his palace called the Yellow House. It was basically a gutted place. And we ended up moving some cots, some MREs, some water, and set up pretty much a, uh, a command uh, post in there to be able to cover his security detail. So basically from the time he woke up to the time he went to bed, we were there with him, escorting him from the palace to the mosque, whatever he traveled. And, uh, that was another, uh, another good lesson learned there about the way uh, we were conducting business because we ended up hiring people to go ahead and do the cooking for us because it was going to be intensive. We had about 56 guys out in that particular detail. But a lot of our guys were getting sick. And uh, the SEAL commander comes up to me and he's like, Ray, I want you to look into this because a lot of our guys are getting really sick. And they're going down for three to five days at a pot. So you're talking about coming out from both ends, just really sick. They couldn't move. Uh, the first place that we decided to look was the kitchen. And they had a meat grinder there. So they didn't chainsaw the chickens. They just put them in the grinder and just put, made, made them that way. But what we saw is that a lot of the pots and everything else had maggots and other stuff. The meat grinder itself ha hadn't been cleaned in about a year. So they were feeding us a whole bunch of bad food. So we fired that caterer and ended up getting somebody else and uh, started eating more MREs. But also on this mission, uh, it was... Uh, Early summer in the in '03, when the '02, I'm sorry, he went to uh, one of his brother's weddings up in the vicinity of Kandahar. And as we're leaving the wedding, he's a pretty proud man. He likes to walk everywhere, which makes it harder for us because he's a huge target. There's a lot of people that want him dead. And in that, this particular wedding, he comes out and he pretty much gets out of the car and he starts hugging people and everything else. This uh, little seal right here, Fab, that's me right there. Fab is sitting in the in the rear, rear left, I'm sitting in the rear right. Karzai is sitting in front with the SEAL commander. As soon as Karzai gets out of the car, Fab sees this guy's moving really fast and they're hiding something, so Fab gets out of the car. He comes around the, the Suburban 
and sees the guys coming at him and nearly drops two guys. Shots were fired so fast. They got off a couple of rounds, and the, the SEAL commander that was driving the, the vehicle ended up getting a nick to the head. And you probably saw his picture in Newsweek. It was a guy that was sitting pretty much on the curb with a T-shirt on, uh, on his head bleeding. But uh, President Karzai's life was saved that day, and everything happened so fast that it will make your head spin. You know, but we were able to protect, and if it would have failed that particular day, the war would have taken a, a, a turn for the worse because the special operators could not even protect the president of the country. Lesson learned there, take care of the boss, and the boss will take care of you. And why did we need to alter? Why did we need to be the great why of special operations of the military or just pretty much evolve as we know it? It's because of the way they fight. They know their ground. They know what to do, they know how to do it, and they know what hurts, and they know when to have patience and hide. This is a pretty lethal enemy, so low-tech, yet high-effective. They know what they do, and this is how they fight. These are some shots from Roberts Ridge. This is one of the bunkers that we couldn't neutralize because we couldn't see it. Imagine snow covering all of this, and then being able to just pretty much shoot in between trees and having two primary features right there protecting them from our, from our incoming fire. Look at the trenches. Remember I told you about that uphill battle? This is probably what we would have encountered if we would have let those guys go a little bit farther. They would have dug in, gotten those RPGs, and pretty much made us freaking gone. That is, that is how they fight. And this is uh, one of the guns that ended up killing uh, Chappie and, uh, and Neil, possibly. And uh, man, they just know, look at, look at the, the structure. You know, shooting downhill, they can move that tripod up anywhere where they need to go, and you cannot pretty, pretty much penetrate that. You know, you saw some of that in Normandy, how the, pretty much everybody was on high ground, well barricaded, shooting down, and you had to take significant casualties to be able to, be able to neutralize uh, the threat. But we bring some good firepower, and that's why the Air Force is great, air power, as witnessed here. Those are a couple of 500-pound bombs, and uh, this is a shot of Tora Bora. I have a friend, combat controller Joe O'Keefe, that is still waiting on his check because this was when bin Laden was hiding in Tora Bora. And he spent so much ammunition out there for 72 hours straight that he swears to kill bin Laden. And he says that that is a stunt double. So <laughs> he's still waiting for the check. When he retired, the retirement cake was a big check for the money he never got. But uh, that is uh, pretty amazing on its own. And these are pictures following Roberts Ridge. Operation Anaconda did not end that day. There were a lot of people that ended up uh, leaving the area that survived the attack, especially the, the, the airstrikes following the, the intense firefight. A lot of them were Chechens, and a lot of them were pretty much Afghan locals facilitating for these foreign fighters to be able to go ahead and uh, do what they did. Um, Found a lot of things. When we found the bodies, we knew that there, were, there was equipment missing. Uh, we found some horrific things done to our, to our friends, which pretty much made us angrier. So we wanted to go ahead and get more payback once again. Uh, the intelligence kept rolling, 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 and we had just gotten in country and that we had to call for this one particular mission. And that mission was to intercept some vehicles heading towards a training site that potentially had some of the survivors of Anaconda. What you're looking at here is uh, after killing all the enemy, this is John Chapman's helmet and John Chapman's weapon by serial number. They had it. In addition, this is his MVG catcher's mask right there. 
also, this is Neil Roberts' sniper rifle and his fire department uh, watch cap. See, Neil had uh, written uh, September 11, 2001 in the bus stock of his rifle. So they ended up uh, getting that uh, from him. And also his LBE and some of the other equipment that he was carrying. Not only that, but this bastard right here had the nerve to, after Neil was shot and killed, and pretty much all the atrocities were done to him, he stole Neil's jacket. That is a Mountain Hardware Chugach jacket. And he had Neil's initials on it. So not only we, did we take the jacket back, we ended up dropping a couple more bombs to make that place just totally disappear. Out of anger and out of payback, because our boys back needed some good, some good news. There's no place like home. Part of that is because of the environment that we're put in and the time that we spend away from home. We end up spending on the average between 200 and 300 days out of the year away from our loved ones. And this is pretty much the environment that we live in. Pretty much looks like a refugee camp. This is kind of like Tony Montana in freaking Freedom Town in Scarface right there. <laughs> but uh, you're talking dust, you're talking incest, you're talking you know, bad nutrition, worse weather. It gets too cold, it gets too warm. You have to go to 10,000 feet. You have to work in the valley with mosquitoes. You have malaria. You have to take all these pills to go along with it. It takes a toll on the body. Going back to the physical fitness aspect of things, that's one of the other key reasons. We don't do it just to remain fit. We do it because we have to, because of nature, the things that we have to survive, the things that we have to endure. And it is, uh, Afghanistan is probably one of the toughest terrain that I have ever worked on, just because it can go from jungle to desert, desert to high mountaineering uh, scenarios. And we do all these things because we know that somebody's got to do this job. Because if we don't do it, the possibility of somebody else striking our country, our own soil, is there. And that's when we fight the war we think. It's pretty much, we go through a lot. I recently found out that there's an article in Men, Men's Journal, which I had the, the article right in there. What the War Did to Andy is called, the article. Andy Kubik is a good friend of mine, combat controller, Silver Star recipient in Afghanistan, and Bronze Star with Valor in Bosnia. Andy uh, got put in a lot of bad situations, and Andy did so honorably and fought valiantly and ended up coming up on top until he returned home. When he got home, he got extremely paranoid, started hitting the bottles, started hitting pills, and uh, was basically let go of the service. So he goes to Michigan, and then he starts committing crimes just because he needs that adrenaline. He needs to do something that puts him in danger. And uh, long story short, Andy's now in a VA hospital going through some treatment for substance abuse and PTSD. But how does a warrior go from top performer to that? How do we deal when our friends die in helicopter crashes? How do we feel? When I get to come home and kiss Janet and my friend is dead in Afghanistan and I have the widow standing there weeping next to us, how do we deal looking at the, at the locker next to you in the team room and knowing that Scott Sather is never going to come back? How do you deal with the people that you couldn't save? When I couldn't save a life and that's what I'm designed to do, that's what you pay me to do to bring people back home and I couldn't save it. How could I deal with the people I have killed, the people that I have put bullets into, those who weren't dead and those that you have questions about? That is exactly the struggle. And I'll tell you that it's not easy. And demons will catch up with all of us at some point. They got a hold of, uh, of Andy. 
and Andy didn't have a family support. His wife left him, and his kid pretty much went with the wife. But the one thing that I personally have is sitting right here in the front row, and that is the support that I have gotten from, uh, from Janet and my family. Janet herself has to put up with, when Ray was doing surveillance and reconnaissance missions, sleeping in a half sleeping bag up to here with a big puffy jacket in snow, just getting about two hours of sleep at a time just to make sure nobody walked up on us and pretty much surprised us because it will be pretty embarrassing to be found dead in CNN with a half sleeping bag that looks like a sack race. And then it's like, what the hell is the special operations guy doing up there getting shot after a sack race? But uh, we ended up doing a lot of different things. And uh, I will come home, and we had this nice king Tempur-Pedic bed. And I'll come home all smelly because we were eating the food. I had the long beer. There was probably chainsaw chicken stuck in it still. <laughs> and uh, she will be like, all right, you need to shower. You need to go ahead and shave that thing and, uh, you know, come to bed. So as I'm sleeping, well, this is after, you know, but as I'm sleeping, <laughs> she has this bed three-quarters to herself, and I'm still sleeping like a mummy. Not only that, but any minor knows I will stand up, pop up like a jack-in-a-box. She could deal with that. The one thing that got her was the one eyeball open. That was freaking her out. <laughs> so she's like, you know what? That eye thing, you got to stop it, all right? Otherwise, you're going to the couch. So we ended up doing that. My point is, is that sense of humor has carried me through a lot of this, and it continues to do because very few things in life I take serious. Combat is one of them. You have seen the face, and then you have seen the face. There's two different guys, and Janet calls it the switch. When I'm in combat, I turn into a totally different person. When I come home, I have to flick that switch, not only because of my combat mentality, but also because she's been running the house. And if I try to change anything that she's done, <laughs> I'm telling you, the Taliban's got nothing on my baby. <laughs> she scares me. But this particular guy right here, that is my helmet. This is his helmet. And if you look at mine, it looks like a Kevlar yarmulke on top of his head because this guy is probably about like 6'5", six, six about 260 pounds, and then there's little old me. And we had to special order his helmet because the Air Force didn't have his size. That's how big this animal's head is. And uh, so I was just like, I put it on, and it's kind of like I look like one of those Mary Brothers characters in there, but, or Spaceballs for that matter. And then the last thing that I want to talk about on this slide is about uh, our buddies that make it back, but they're not the same anymore. Chad Giske. Jack here recently uh, got injured in a parachuting accident to where he's a quadriplegic right now. Uh, low visibility, no markings on the landing zone. Pretty much came in too hard with all his equipment on. 100 pounds plus of equipment. Broke his neck upon landing. So now we're, making, we're, we're following his, uh, his recovery right now. But these are good friends that they don't get to be coming to us like they were before. But one thing that doesn't change is that they're still our family. Their families are our families, and we really embrace every single one of them. Jack will never be out of our scope. He's moving to Dallas here on April 6th, and I'm pretty sure that guys are going to be riding their Harleys up there because it's a big Harley rider to go and visit him every so often, just like we do with Chad, Chad Giesky. And not only us, but the wives partake on this. There is no wife out there that has lost her husband or lost some capacity of her husband that doesn't have 20 more wanting to take care of her and make sure she's got everything she needs. 
That is the true essence of special operations families. Just like the Spartans, remember I talked about them earlier. It was a tight community to where a man can look at his woman and she can pretty much put a sword to somebody's gut if she felt that they were disrespecting their family. And she's probably got about three swords and a gun in her purse or something. <laughs> and then there's those who wait for us. And I talked a lot about Janet because, I mean, she, she is my saving grace. She listens. Uh, she's pretty much there for me all the time. And never once has she complained. The only time that I have come home from combat is when her mom, Sally, was about to pass, pass away. And uh, that was the time that she said, Ray, it's time. And those were good enough words to where I found my way home and I was able to be there for Sally, for Janet and Bill before she passed on. Outside of that, she's fully supportive. She's always there, and she's always just wanting to see which one of our guys is pretty much going to be the one coming home victorious and which, which one is going to tell the best stories. Um, my family right here, mom and dad, this is the woman that put up with the underoos kid. <laughs> this is the man that pretty much told her to whack me because he wouldn't whack me when I was, kid, when I was a kid. He delegated the ass whoopings to mom. Isn't that great? <laughs> Talk about psyops. That is the good one. Mom is the one that pretty much hands it over. Until what time, I had a rubber band with a lollipop stick, and uh, Dad had told me to go. He didn't want, want me watching TV with him, Rat Patrol, what have you. And I had a clear view of him. This is the beginning of my sniper training. And I'm like, man, you didn't watch my The thing misfired. And I hit him right in, the, right in the back of the ear. I didn't come out of the room for about 24 hours. Yeah. So... But this is something to look forward to. This is what keeps us going day by day. And the biggest lesson learned here is that it wasn't anger. That's not why I wanted to fight. Because a true warrior fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he lost what's left behind. Not only them sitting right there in the front row, but all of you, the people that support us day in and day out. And then there's those who can never come back. John Chapman, Scott Sather, Scott Duffman. Adam Brown recently sealed, killed last week. Neil Roberts, Jason Cunningham, Dusty Markham, those are all close friends that have passed on. I've died at the end of the at the, the hands of the enemy, but they wouldn't have it any other way. Spartans always talked about dying a beautiful death. We fight to fight to die an honorable death. If I'm gonna go, I wanna go doing what I do best, as I'm pretty sure all these men have pretty much thought about before they went out. A lot of us write letters that come out once we're gone to explain the reason of why we're content with what we did. Because we accept it every day. Every day we set foot, when we put on our trousers and we go to work, it may be our last, whether it's training, whether it's combat. Anything can happen. But we accept that because that's what we signed up to do. That's what's special about special operations. It's coming to terms with what you're willing to do and how much you're willing to sacrifice. And I know that my wife is willing to sacrifice it all with me. She won't like it when I'm gone, but she knows I died doing what I love to do. Before I go ahead and say some closing words here, I want to say that I love every single one of these men like if they were my, uh, my brothers. And even though they cannot be here with us, they are. Because every time we step into the fight now, they're not fighting just Ray Colon Lopez. They're fighting all seven of those guys that I mentioned with me, within me, because we carry them with us. Their memory lives, and we have memorials. We have 
streets named after them. We have museum exhibits for them. And we just never, ever, ever let go because that is also something that fuels the fire within dealing with those demons that I spoke about. It's everything that's been sacrificed so far for you not to be able to succeed in this particular mission. And that is the essence of Special Operations Warrior.